Last week, we started our new sermon series in the book of Habakkuk, and today is our second installment, um, preaching through the book of Habakkuk. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me. Last week, we saw in the first four verses of the book of Habakkuk, we were introduced to the prophet who does not understand what is going on around him. He cries out to the Lord, wanting to know how long he will keep crying out to God and why God does, does not act. And he cries out to God why there is injustice and why there is destruction and why God does nothing about this. And Habakkuk is confused at God because of the moral condition of the nation of Israel and why it seems that God is not intervening. Well, today in our text, uh, we'll be looking at verse uh, 5 to verse 11, and we see God responding to Habakkuk's complaints. And we will see that God is not inactive in the affairs of man, nor is he unable to change the circumstances or judge the wicked. The title of my sermon this morning is God at Work. And uh, we're going to read, just for context, to help us remember the passage from verse 1 this morning all the way through to verse 11. So if you would stand with me, please, and um, we will, out of respect to God's word, read this portion together. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, Violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Father, we ask that you would please give us understanding this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your Spirit is our teacher, and he will teach us all truth and guide us into the truth. And we ask for your help in doing that today. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave here today just going through the motions or just having a, a general understanding, but that your Spirit would help us to apply these truths these biblical truths to our lives personally, and Lord, that we would respond in a way that would honor you. 
So I pray for your help today. Please, Lord, give me the words to be able to communicate our sufficient Savior here today, the one who is in control, the one who is sovereign over all circumstances and all events that are surrounding us and troubling us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to confess our unbelief today and to trust you more and to honor you better in the way that we live and the decisions that we make for your glory. So, Lord, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So I enjoy watching a television show called Shark Tank. Um, we, we watch it on, on YouTube. It is a show that, um, it's a show about people with business ideas that get pitched to different investors. And the people come to the investors asking for money to grow their business. And there is an important point that the investors must make to their, to their business owners once the investors give the money, they are going to help them out in any way that they need later on. Uh, they are not uh, silent partners. This is not just a one-time investment. Once they have given the $100,000 or whoever, however much it is, the investors are going to watch their investment prosper. They're not going to just stand by and watch it crash and burn in flames. And the investor will give them what they need to make the, the business successful. I think we need to see the same truth when it comes to God. God has made an enormous investment into the lives of Christians. God has sacrificed His Son on the cross. And He's not going to stand by and just watch us crash and burn. God is now going to be in very involved in the lives of His children. God's not going to ignore us. He's not paying attention. He's not going to not pay attention to our needs after giving us His only Son. God is invested in our lives. He is going to see us through to the completion of this life. And the writer of Hebrews confidently tells us this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And what can man do to me? And we see these questions coming up in the book of Habakkuk. Even though the world around him and the, con and the situations that they facing do not make sense, they need to come back confidently to this very important truth that the Lord is our helper, and we do not need to fear of what man can do to us. In last week's sermon, I concluded by reminding you that when suffering and when life does not make sense, we need to look to the cross as the eternal monument of, of God's love and mercy towards us. But today I want to challenge you to look to the cross again for something else. The cross proves to us that our Lord continues to watch over us and care for us. And He knows what is happening to us. And that He is in control. And that He knows you and that He loves you. 
So my first point this morning is simply the invader that is appointed. We see in verse 5 and verse 6, the Lord mentioning the invader who is going to judge Israel. And the Lord begins by telling Habakkuk that he is going to see something that he's not going to believe. And four different words are used to proclaim this amazement of what God is going to do in verse 5. Look there in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. So look in that verse. The words look are mentioned. The words see are mentioned. The words wonder and the word astounded are used just in that one verse. God is going to do something big here. God is doing something amazing. He is going to bring the justice that Habakkuk is crying out for. It's interesting to notice that God essentially agrees with, with Habakkuk. There is injustice happening. There is violence happening. There is destruction and wickedness all around. God does not dispute these charges by Habakkuk. God agrees. God does not have a different code of justice to his prophet Habakkuk. God does not tell Habakkuk that, that he is just seeing things or imagining things. He agrees with Habakkuk about the condition of the people of Israel. And what we learn is that we saw last week as well and today again that God's time frame is not the same as ours. God doesn't work according to our schedule. God, God does not act when we think he should act. Habakkuk has been looking around at this situation for years in Israel. God seems to tell Habakkuk that the time was not right yet, but it is coming when judgment will certainly happen. God is doing a work in the days of Habakkuk, even though Habakkuk cannot see it. He cannot visibly, tangibly see these effects. But God is acting in the affairs of this world. And God answers Habakkuk's prayer. But the answer was not what Habakkuk had expected. The answer of God did not even solve Habakkuk's problem. In fact, it actually gave him greater problems than he previously had. Notice there, God does not answer the question, why for Habakkuk? but just says, what is going to happen? The Lord is the sovereign I am that I am. He owes no apology. He owes no explanation of the whys and the wherefores of His ways and actions to anybody. He is God. We are not. He always remains the Lord of unwavering justice. He always remains the Lord of unchanging grace. And even though we cannot understand his dealings with mankind, he is still God. The Lord says to him in verse 5, you're not going to believe this. And then in verse 6, he explains that he is going to send the Chaldeans to, to punish Judah's sins. Look at verse 6 in your Bibles. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now this must have been horrifying for Habakkuk to hear. The Chaldeans were the, the wicked 
um, Babylonians, they were, they were ruthless. And God would raise up these Babylonians and they would, be, um, uh, they would be overthrown, all of Jerusalem. They would end up being captured. Judah would then be taken into captivity, into slavery. They, would, they were going to be driven off their land, which God had given to them. This was a terrible prophecy. Perhaps God told them to look. Perhaps God told them to, to watch because He wanted them to be frightened so as to produce repentance in that nation. Perhaps Jerusalem could be saved if the people would turn their hearts to God. We know that Egypt could not help them. The armies that they had could not help them. Their diplomacy could not help them. Their foreign alliances could not help them. The only one who could help them was Jehovah God. Notice in verse 6, God tells Habakkuk, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm sure that the Chaldeans would have looked at it differently. They would have accredited their, their might to their, to their strong warriors or their disciplined troops or, or their superior weaponry. And some in Israel may have argued that it was, was Satan who was going to discipline them, not God. But we see here, the Lord says, I am going to raise them up. Clearly, He raised them up to bring His judgment on His sinning people. He is the Lord of history, who raises up kings and people according to His sovereign purpose. And this is what confused Habakkuk, how the Lord would use a wicked nation like the Babylonians to discipline the children of God. But it's easy to lose sight of this when we face personal trials, isn't it? We forget about God's sovereign plan. We forget that He is in control. We forget that He is sovereign overall. And for Habakkuk personally, it meant that life as he had always known it would come to a very frightening, permanent change. The Chaldeans destroyed the nation of Judah. We know what happened in hindsight they leveled the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And they slaughtered countless Jewish people. They forcefully deported many more as slaves. And they left a weak remnant in the land as caretakers of the broken down city. And never again in Habakkuk's lifetime would he or his family know life as they had known it before. They would never, ever experience that prosperous life that they had before the Chaldeans came and destroyed them. But he and the rest of the godly remnant had to submit their individual lives to God's greater purpose, in God's kingdom, in God's history. I think likewise we need to view our lives within the greater picture of God's purpose when it comes to history like the way one preacher said it once, it is his story, his story. This is not our story, it is God's story. Because we are created by him and owned by him, he can use us in any way that he wishes. Look at the description the Lord gives of the Babylonians in our, in our next point. The next point is the invaders that are described. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. 
Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Well, here's a great summary of this chapter from one Bible commentator. He says, The Babylonians recognize no law but their own. The cavalry, swiftly with agility and mobility, overran a country, looting, raping, killing, spreading terror, horror, and panic. The cavalry would then be followed by the fierce infantry, which rolled on as a death-dealing machine. They carried on murderous raids as ravenous evening wolves killed their prey. Distance was no obstacle to them. Like the vulture, they see their prey from incredible distances so they can hasten to kill and eat it. The Babylonians relentlessly pushed on, gathering innumerable prisoners, which they made slaves. But notice in verse 9 there, the same word is used in verse 2, the word violence. It's mentioned in verse 9 and as well as verse 2. Verse 9, the Babylonians brought violence to the land because the Israelites were guilty of violence. We see that in verse 2. God punished violence with violence. Now imagine how this must have struck fear in the hearts of the people when they heard this, but we know still there was a reluctance to repent. They closed their minds. They they. Block, blocked up their ears, they, they hardened their, their hearts. And I'm sure they probably rationalized it this way. Well, a loving God wouldn't do anything that horrible. There is no real danger. Don't listen to Habakkuk. God is God of love. These prophets are always alarmists. They're always threatening people with fear tactics. Surely God wouldn't use wicked Babylonians to, to chastise or judge the righteous of Israel. The whole idea is impossible. But we see that is exactly what God did. We see again how little the Israelites really understood the holy character of God. That He is perfect in every way. And he would judge sin. And the trouble with Judah was that they never believed God's prophets. They never believed God's word. I think not very different from many people of today. People often do not believe God's word. or They don't believe the word when it is preached. The most significant illustration of this, I think we see in Acts chapter 13 which we looked at previously, where the Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk, and he applies it to the people that he's preaching um, at in, the, in, in Pisidian Antioch. Turn with me quickly to Acts chapter 13. Keep your finger there in Habakkuk. And turn to Acts chapter 13. In verse 20. 6 to 41, we're going to look at that passage. Paul quotes Habakkuk at the end of the paragraph. 
And first, Paul, notice what, what he is preaching. Notice what Paul is preaching there. Beginning in verse 26, we see Paul preaching the, the arrest. He's talking about the death, and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 32. Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the good news, bringing salvation from God to the world that was originally promised to Abraham. And then look at verse 38. It is through Jesus that the forgiveness of sins is offered. And then look at verse 39. All who believe in Jesus are set free from the curse of the law. Now in verse 41, Paul uses Habakkuk to conclude his point. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul's quoting Habakkuk here, folks. Paul points to the very same problem that Habakkuk had during this time. Habakkuk was told that God was going to destroy the nation because of the, the sins of the people. The people were full of violence, full of oppression and wickedness and destruction. And therefore, God was going to use the Babylonians to judge the people. And here in Acts, Paul's warning really matches God's warning in the book of Habakkuk. The first century Jewish nation is full of the same wickedness. And God is going to use the Romans to destroy the nation if the people do not believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. God's message is clear throughout the Scriptures. Justice will come from God's hands. God is a God of justice. God will act. He is not like the judges we know who are corrupt. God will vindicate the righteous. God will deal with the wicked. But the people of God need to be patient. God sees the affairs of the earth and God will respond. God is in action even when we cannot see His hand directly at work. Our third and last point we see in verse 10 and verse 11. Look there with me in your Bibles. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. I think you're getting some of the picture here. These Babylonians were proud. They were, they were arrogant, but they were also very bold in their military tactics. We see they mocked kings, they mocked rulers, and they had devised a new technique of taking what seemed to be these, these strong, impregnable cities. Instead of scaling these fortified walls, instead of climbing these, these walls, what it tells us they did is they piled up dirt, and they made a, a ramp so that they could all just walk over the wall. So a soldier, instead of carrying a weapon, he would carry a bucket and he would carry a shield. And when the ramp was complete, these horses and then these chariots and the infantry would just pour over the wall and just go into the city, leaving the city completely defenseless. And of course, this made these Babylonians drunk with success. And this made them very proud. And we see even in this passage, they, they thought themselves to be God. 
They deified themselves. They believed their military might and their power made them unstoppable. Nebuchadnezzar built for his own glory, not for the glory of God. We know about Nebuchadnezzar. He's mentioned in the Bible many times. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? We see his pride really consuming him to the point where he was, where he was destroyed. And we know that the Bible teaches that pride goes before a fall. And pride makes us think that we do not need God. And pride separates us from God. God would deal with Babylon in his own time. Turn with me quickly to Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 4. I think it's important that you see how the Lord dealt with, with Babylon in Daniel chapter 4. Listen to what happened next to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 4 verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth. So this is just after Nebuchadnezzar spoke these words in verse 30 about his glory and his majesty and his power. Then in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. God judged Nebuchadnezzar to the point where he was walking around like a cow, eating grass in the fields. God wasn't inactive. And he wasn't unable to judge the wicked. But in his omnipotent sovereignty, he knew who he needed to judge the Israelites. He was going to use this wicked nation to judge his holy people. Next week we will see Habakkuk's response to God's answer. He doesn't like God's answer. And again, we see some complaints. We'll see that next week. But I want to finish today with one important lesson. Just one in a, in a true story to help illustrate for us this vital truth from this lesson here today in God's Word. And the lesson simply is that we need to remember when we begin the Christian life, when we are born again, when we turn to faith in Jesus Christ, we take up God at His Word. We start to believe His Word concerning His Son, Jesus, concerning His death and His resurrection on the cross to pay for the penalties of our sins, and that we can do nothing in ourselves to earn His salvation. We need to believe this. And then we continue living by faith, basing our lives on God's Word, upon His truth. And either you are trusting in yourself or your righteousness to get into 
to heaven, which is pride, which makes you an unbeliever, or you are trusting solely in what God has done in Christ Jesus. Faith in what God has told us. And faith also trusts God when we do not understand His ways. When evil things happen to us, we must trust that God is in charge and that He will reward us and He will punish the wicked, if not in this lifetime, in eternity, which awaits us. Trust His Word. Believe His Word. And we need to believe that God is in control of history and that nothing in this world happens outside of God's divine design. He's not in heaven rubbing His hands. What have I done? He's fully in control. We may not understand, just as Habakkuk did not understand himself, but the mystery of history is guided by the God of history. So if you're a Christian this morning, be reminded that God is concerned about us. And He wants to equip us for more useful service in His kingdom. He doesn't want to leave us just as we are. He has promised to complete the work that He had started in us. We therefore should need to judge every event in light of God's great, eternal, and glorious purpose. Now, here's a story that I want to share with you to illustrate this. It's a little bit of a long story, but I think you can manage it. I think you can, can, can pay attention. In the summer of 1939, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a pastor of the famous 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was in Scotland preaching. And his family had been staying at a little summer resort on the coast of Normandy in France. It was a summer full of preaching in Scotland with more preaching scheduled in September in Belfast Island. But there was a week between the end of the first set of preaching conferences and the beginning of the second. And so Dr. Barnhouse decided to join his family in France for some vacation. And as he set out for France from Edinburgh, Scot Scot Scotland, officials along the way urged him not to travel to France. Europe was in political turmoil because Hitler had just signed his treaty with Russia and was threatening to march into Poland. The possibility of war seemed remote, and Barnhouse decided to travel to France in spite of the warnings he received along the way. And as he traveled by train and plane to France, Dr. Barnhouse noticed soldiers and the military everywhere. There seemed to be a frenzy of military activity taking place all around. Nevertheless, he was able to join his family in Normandy on Sunday evening. And most of the time was spent on the beach, though the atmosphere was tense with uncertain anticipation for what was about to happen. Every time a plane was heard over, overhead, Everyone on the beach would stop playing and look up, wondering whose plane it was. And finally, someone would shout out, It's one of ours! And the people would breathe a sign of relief, and their play would resume. Monday went by, then Tuesday, then Wednesday. And finally, on Thursday morning, word came out that there would be no more flights to England. If Dr. Barnhouse was to return to Great Britain, he would have to travel by train to Paris and then by boat to England. A decision had to be made at once. Dr. Barnhouse left on the next train for Paris. And while Dr. Barnhouse traveled to Paris, the French ordered a military mobilization. 
a system of church bells alerted people in France to the news of the mobilization. There was a massive call-up of men to go into military service. When Dr. Barnhouse arrived in Paris, there was already a blackout in effect. All windows were covered with thick blankets so that no light would shine out of the windows. It was a strange feeling knowing that things were changing. Dr. Barnhouse was able to catch the last civilian train to the coast. And once there, he was able to catch the last boat that would transport civilians across the English Channel for many years. And once on board the boat, Dr. Barnhouse found and met the captain. And together they listened to the radio reports. Hitler had moved into Poland. The bombing was terrible. The English Prime Minister, Neville, Neville Chamberlain, called a meeting of his cabinet. He issued a statement saying that if the Germans were not out of Poland by 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, Britain would declare war on Germany. And the captain of the boat, with typical British calmness, said, This time there will be no turning back. This is it. It was Friday, September the 1st, 1939. Dr. Barnhouse arrived in England and caught a train to London. And from there, he caught another train to the coast of Scotland, from where he was to take a boat over to Ireland. He spent all day on Saturday traveling along with thousands of frightened children who were being sent out of London in order to get out of harm's way. At one point, he saw a young boy who looked pitiful. He was so scared that he had wet his pants. Thousands of soldiers were also being mobilized for the imminent war. And Dr. Barnhouse finally arrived in the train station in Belfast at about 3 o'clock on Sunday morning. The committee that arranged the Belfast preaching conference was waiting, having judged correctly that Dr. Barnhouse would make every effort to get to the preaching conference. And after he disembarked from the train, they all prayed briefly. Then they made their way carefully through the, light, through the lightless streets to the hotel. And the hotel was heavily curtained inside because of the blackout. And the committee said goodnight. The worship was in just a few hours at 11 a.m. And they would be back to pick him up at 10.30 a.m. In parting, one of the men said to Dr. Barnhouse, I hope you have a good sermon it may be the last sermon that some of these men will ever hear. Then they were gone. Dr. Barnhouse stood alone in the hotel room with his baggage piled around him. Slowly he moved over to the desk. He picked up a piece of paper in order to write the outline for his sermon that morning. He knew that it had to be a sermon hammered out on the anvil of life, not one that smelled of the study in any way. And years later, Barn Barnhouse said, I stood there and prayed and suddenly... I thought of the perfect text for that coming hour. And with great rapidity, I wrote down the text and three or four thoughts that would be my subheads and then went to sleep. In the morning, some of the committee members arrived to drive him to St. Enoch's Church, perhaps the largest church in Ireland. And there the minister, who was exceedingly anxious, greeted him. It was Sunday morning, September the 3rd, 1939 just a few minutes before 11 a.m., Prime Minister Chamberlain had announced that he would speak on the radio at that very hour, and everyone sensed that he would declare war on Germany. The minister thanked Dr. Barnhouse repeatedly for being there. The church will be full of lads who will never come back, he said. I pray God will give you something for them. And as the group walked away toward the sanctuary, Dr. Barnhouse thought, 
that there would probably be very few people at worship because everyone would be at home listening to the radio for the announcement of the prime minister. But he was wrong. The sanctuary was completely packed. There was not an empty seat in the building. The worship service began. The church sang a few hymns. An elder slipped a note to the pastor who then handed it to Barnhouse. It read, No reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. A moment later, Dr. Barnhouse was introduced to speak. Dr. Barnhouse began by telling how, uh, by telling how he had outlined his sermon at 4 o'clock that morning, but that in spite of the circumstances, he had a text for them that was the most wonderful text in the Bible for such a day. It was spoken by the Lord Jesus himself, and it was a command from Matthew 24, verse 6. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Dr. Barnhouse then recounted the series of experiences that he had on his way to Belfast. And after each account, he repeated his text. Do not be troubled. He told of the church bells sounding. Do not be troubled. He told of the mobilization of soldiers. Do not be troubled. He told of the frightened children. Do not be troubled. He told of the millions of homes that would be broken up. Do not be troubled. He told of the thousands of children that would be torn from their mothers and would represent in their cries all the anguish going up from the world. Do not be troubled. The tension was mounting in the sanctuary. But then, when monstrous grief had been piled on agonizing horror, Dr. Barnhouse stopped and said, These words are either the words of a madman, or they are the words of God. Do not be troubled. He shook his fist toward heaven and said, God, unless Jesus Christ is God then these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts which can weep and bowels which can be gripped by human compassion and sympathy. Men are dying. Do not be troubled. Children are crying in their naked loneliness with no beloved face in sight. Do not be troubled. Oh God, how can Jesus Christ say such a thing? But then came the answer. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the God of today's news. Jesus Christ is the God of every detailed circumstance. And nothing has ever happened that did not flow in the channel that God has dug for it. No event has ever flamed up in spite of God or left Him astonished, bewildered, or confused. He is our God. The sin of man has reduced the world to an arena of passion and fury. Like wild beasts, men tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of the news today, of which Jesus Christ is Lord, each individual who has believed in Him as the Savior and the Lord of life will know the power of His resurrection and will learn today's news, horrible however it is, cannot separate us from the love of God. Brothers and sisters, Dr. Barnhouse's message so many years ago, this morning is the lesson that God had taught Habakkuk and that he is teaching all of us today. 
that God is in control of today's news. It may not be good news, but He's in control of it. It follows His plan. It follows His timetable. And it is all bound up with His great, glorious, eternal, and kingdom purposes. Amen? But let me just say, if you are not a believer this morning, this section of Scripture tells us that God is guiding history to a final end. That God is just. There will be a judgment upon sin. And we know from the New Testament that the final end is the second coming of Jesus Christ. God has a plan for all nations as well as for all individuals. And those who yield to Christ will be born again and will become part of His family. And just as Dr. Barnhouse reminded us, the worst thing that could happen to a Christian is the best thing. We will be ushered up into glory to be with our Savior forever and ever, where there will be no weeping. But those who do not yield to Christ will face judgment. The Good Shepherd takes care of His sheep, but He judges those who reject His Son. Have you submitted to the will of God for your life? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only one who can take away your sin? Well, turn to Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. Father, we do thank you for this reminder in this passage of Scripture that, Lord, you are in control. You are in control of this universe. Lord, maybe we cling on to our own comforts and we love our prosperity maybe more than you, Lord, and we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness this morning if that is true with us. Lord, we pray your will be done. But sometimes, Lord, we, we pray, well, Lord, please try and make my will to be done as well. Please forgive us, Lord, if that is true of any one of us today. Lord, we want your will to be done. And Lord, if that means persecution, if that means that Muslims and Islam takes over this country and imprisons us, May your will be done, Father. May that be the word that we are willing to say and confess with our lips. If that involves suffering, if that involves unemployment, if that involves death, may your will be done. You are the God of history, Lord. You are the God of creation. May we be willing to bow to your will. Not ours, Lord. May we find joy and comfort in that. And may we not be troubled by the world around us as we rest in the glorious inheritance that awaits your children. May we rest in the comfort, Lord, of being with you one day, worshiping you perfectly without any tears and any more violence or any sin. May that be, Lord, our glorious destination that we long to be. Father, change our hearts if it's not, Lord. Change our hearts if we are still stuck in this world, finding our joy in the things around us that do not matter. Lord, we pray while we're here. May our lives count for your glory. May we live the lives, Lord, that you have called us to live make your name famous in the workplace where you put us, in the school where we learn, at home where we live, 
Help us to live for your glory, Lord. Father, may you be pleased at the end of the day when we stand before you. May we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray for the last amongst us. The last that will hear, depart from me into the lake of fire. I do not know you. We pray for those people, Lord, that you would grant them faith to believe in the eternal Son of God for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a heart to believe and they would call upon the name of Jesus today. We ask in your precious name. Amen.